During this podcast, some strict noise made their way into the recording. Unfortunately, we were unable to remove all of them. Apologies for the inconvenience. Hopefully you'll be able to enjoy the conversation anyway. Uh, the need to medicalise mental health based mm-hmm. on a there is a diagnosis, we fix it. Mental health is messy and actually it very does not, very often doesn't lend itself to labels that fit mm-hmm. in neat boxes. You know, it's not a clean fracture. Right. And there there are very often layers and complexities, which is why it's it's a difficult one for people to discuss and get their heads around. Welcome to Social Fabric. Conversations with people about their passion and their interaction with the community. For more episodes or information, visit socialfabric.ie, iTunes or Spotify. The program is also broadcasted weekly on Dublin's Near FM 90.3. This week's guest is Paula McLaughlin, acting CEO of A Lust for Life, a charity that supports and promotes mental health initiatives. Check out their podcast series where there is a will about the mental health system in Ireland. You can find out more about them on alustforlife.com. Can I call you up a while on a Friday night? We could reminisce on old days and we could talk a while. Thanks, Amelia, for meeting with me, following the comment. And uh, um, so, I mean, the Lost for Life and in the latest podcast that I've been listening to the last couple of episodes, very, very good, genuinely very good. Uh, I want to talk a lot about that, but I think first we need to start about you. Yep. And tell us a bit about you, a little bit of your bio. My bio, how long have you got? Um, I love time. So I'm originally from Dublin. Um, I uh, travelled an awful lot and then ended up uh, living in London. Uh, one of those uh, cases of I'm go- I'll go for 18 months and 20 years later I found myself uh, still there. Uh, so I was in management consultancy um, doing uh, your pretty stereotypical, uh, you know, more air miles than God. Um, great job title but hadn't seen anybody I loved in three or four weeks mm-hmm. because I was working 24 hours a day seven days a week so I started to make kind of different decisions uh, about what it was that I defined as success um, and gradually got out of that world to an extent uh, I ended up a COO of a think tank in St James's Park in London for a few years which was amazing absolutely amazing what's the CEO of a think tank do? Uh, we basically, uh, this think tank had been around for 100 years and they do research and consultancy, it's called the Work Foundation, they do research and consultancy around the future of work and the future of the knowledge economy. So they do an awful lot of advice uh, for, you know, number 10 uh, Downing Street and the uh, C-suite of, uh, you know, major corporates around the UK around what's coming, what they should be anticipating from a policy point of view, from a trend perspective. And so it was fascinating, the people got to interact with where you know you have those moments of you know I'm just a little girl from Dublin what am I doing sitting in Downing Street with the Chancellor of the Exchequer it was you know it was amazing and then I worked independently for a few years and started to get involved in various charities in the UK Um, and uh, one was focused on children that have been caught up in the criminal system just for kids law and another was uh, focused on people that have been marginalised from the workforce for whatever reason, uh, either due to a criminal background, intergenerational unemployment, variety of reasons, huge issue in the UK. But um, why, just before, because I was going to ask you about that, but before you go on, so if you go back to Dublin for a minute, uh, yeah. when you were growing up in Dublin, yeah. um, what was it like? 
what was Dublin like? Yeah, what was it like for you? Well, why did you go oh, to look, London? And I, I thought Dublin was a wonderland. I had a, a, a you know, three brothers, um, but a huge extended family. So Mad Moxie cousins. We travelled in packs everywhere. Uh, weren't particularly wealthy, so we were. You know, there's usually 17 of us in the back of a Ford Cortina going up to the Dublin mountains at weekends. So had a great childhood. Loved Dublin. Thought Dublin was the centre of the universe. But always had this thing of there's more out there. There's a little bit more than this box room I'm going to bed in uh, every night. And, you know, uh, look, the Waltons don't exist. I didn't have a perfect family. Nobody has a perfect family. But I was given uh, education and I was given unconditional love. So I felt that I could kind of go anywhere and do anything. So I started traveling when I was about 17. Uh, Spent nearly six months in Italy and spent a bit of time in Greece. Lived in Paris for two years. Uh, wandered around the States for a while. Um, so I just got the bug. And I think once it gets you, mm. it's kind of hard to get rid of. Um, it's actually been really interesting coming back to Dublin, actually, because I would have always said I was a very proud Dubliner and probably on occasion defensively Irish when I'm living abroad. Um, and then I came back and I'm walking down Grafton Street and I'm like, Jesus, who shrank this while I was away, you know? <laughs> um, and it's very much a case of the friends come over from London and they make that comment. You know, it's all right for me to say the baby's ugly. It's not okay for them. Um, but it's a very, very interesting. It's a, been a very difficult transition coming back, actually. When did you come back to Ireland? About three and a half years ago. Okay. Uh, nearly four now. Um, but a very difficult transition. Um, a very uncomfortable feeling like a stranger in your own city. Um, and oh, the administrative crap that you have to go through when you move countries. And, you know, you're interfacing with probably the duller end of uh, of society for a period of time while you get your car insurance set up and whatever else it is. Um, and you feel you find yourself wanting to scream, I'm one of you, will you stop making this so difficult for me? You know. So yeah, it's it it um Dublin has always been home and, and for all the time I've lived abroad, it was still always home. Um but I always had this thing of there's more out there and I think once you get over, you know, I would have had quite a sheltered Irish Catholic upbringing you know uh, I can always remember meeting my first the first Protestant I'd ever met when I went to UCD <laughs> and you know we were delighted that he was such a nice fella you know <laughs> and when I think about that now it's ridiculous and I think when you start to go abroad you know but it wasn't that long ago no no so it wasn't like a century ago no it wasn't I'm not that old I'm uh, <laughs> not that old but it was you know it, you know the, the church still very much had their their headlock on Ireland at the time you know all of the advancements that we've seen in the last 10 years would have mm. been a pipe dream in those days. Mm. You know, I can remember them starting to sell condoms up in Virgin Megastore and the outroar. My grandmother didn't sleep for weeks, I think, <laughs> you know. Um, so it was a very different time. It was a very different Ireland. It was mm. a fun Ireland. Yeah. It was a gritty Ireland. And the black humour that existed, well, I think it still exists, um, because nobody had a pot to piss in. Um, you know, there was, there was an edge to Ireland. But, mm. you know, we were apologetic for who we were. Um, and I still see remnants of that now and it frustrates me actually because we don't have anything to apologise for Mm. we never did because money doesn't you know equate who you are or define who you are Um, give me your first song there The Blower's Daughter by Damien Rice yeah that was a complete nostalgia uh, thing I I was very very lucky when I moved to London in that I acquired a tribe very very quickly and whilst I was always desperately proud of being Irish I promised myself I wasn't going to sit in Kilburn singing for the homelands at weekends if I'm going to go abroad you know, live in the country and know the culture. Um, and so I had a tribe of, of friends um, from London who are still, you know, like family to me now. We all live together. And one of them in particular, Nikki, 
um, she and I kind of became like sisters and she used to drive me insane with that, that song because when she loved a song she played it over and over and over again to the point of wanting to strangle her uh, Nikki very sadly died about seven years ago uh, at a very young age very unexpectedly um, so yeah it just means an awful lot to me when I hear it now I find myself both laughing and crying at the same time when I hear it and so it is just like you said it would be life goes easy on me most of the time and so it is the shorter story no love no glory no hero You mentioned, start to mention about work, and you were saying something just before we switched on the microphone. Um, says, I don't know you, but I had a quick glance at LinkedIn, which is, uh, <laughs> I was going through all these very high-level jobs, right? You, you did in, in the UK. Most yeah. of them are like CEO level or yeah. director level. Yeah. What was that like? What was, what's it been like? What is it like now? I mean, okay, let's uh, say that you've, you've had a few jobs, right? I looked up at seven of them. I don't know which yeah, jobs yeah, you had. Yeah. Apart from the present one, would you go back to any of them? No. Okay. Uh, no, but I'd probably qualify that. So, yeah, I was a partner with Accenture for a very long time. It's the biggest consultancy in the world. I, there were lots of things that I'm grateful for. I, I became very resilient as a result of that. I learned to think on my feet. You become intellectually dexterous quite quickly because you have no choice everything has to happen uh, yesterday and I learned an awful lot and met some great people um, the lack of purpose uh, never stopped bothering me and I always thought it would stop bothering me when I grew up and then I had to finally admit I had grown up and it was still bothering me um, so do I regret that time uh, no um, I don't think regrets regrets a particularly useful emotion anyway um, uh, would I go back to it? No. Do I still use it now? Yes, because I live a, a bit of a double life in that um, I still do uh, consulting work uh, three days a week. And then I am um, the chair and acting CEO of A Lust for Life every other minute beyond those three days a week. Um, when you say lack of purpose, what do you mean? I couldn't see the point or I couldn't see how I could get excited about uh, the end goal being make rich people richer. That's, you know, there's nothing wrong. We need an economy. We need people who generate wealth. It's what, you know, capitalism is, when it's wrapped with social responsibility, is not a bad thing in my view. Um, so it wasn't a binary, you know, you're all mercenary, you know, right-wing capitalists and you're destroying our planet. It was, for me personally, I didn't get the buzz that I saw other people getting when they signed that billion-dollar deal. Mm. Uh, for me, it was more about the professional pride in what I'd done or you know, bringing a team over the line to, to get something done that I got more of a buzz from. And I mean, London is where you're working in the city. Mm. So mm. that must have been, I don't know, I never worked in the city, but uh, I only know it from movies. And is it as, as cutthroat as it looks? 
Like, uh, like, yeah, yeah, it is. But you, you know, like anywhere, you find your little place. You know, you find your your little corner that's yours. Um, London is a phenomenal place to live and work. The energy of London, uh, you know, can lift you up on a day when you need it. Um, and the pace of London and the possibilities when you're in London, you know, you never feel small in London. It's only you that can make yourself feel small. Nobody else will make you feel small. I think after a period of time, it was probably one of the things that motivated me to move home because of its scale and because it's quite transient. People uh, do tend to, you do feel like you're transacting with people rather than connecting with people. And that becomes difficult to get your head around. It becomes something that you don't really want to buy into uh, after a period of time. Is it cutthroat? Yes. Mm. Is it an individualistic society? Yes, absolutely. But like anywhere, you can see the good in people. You know, my mother used to visit me a lot from Dublin and she always said that she thought London was the friendliest place on the planet because she operated in London the way she operates here. She talks to everybody and they'll talk back and they'll smile back. Um, It's just not a natural tendency in terms of how people interact. But going from uh, uh, that type of business that you were kind of, yeah, as you said, lack of purpose, coming back to Ireland 20 years later, and Ireland's changed. I've been here 28 years. Yeah, yeah. And um, when you were talking about Ireland being a gritty, that's when I came to Ireland, mm. it's nice and gritty, and uh, it's changed dramatically. Mm. So it must have been like nostalgia, you know, that when you came back, it must have been, mm, I, wish, I wish it was a bit more like when I left. I wouldn't wish for it to have stayed where it was. I wouldn't have wished, you know, there's nothing sexy about poverty. There were an awful lot of people that that were really struggling. Um, And as I say, the the pain that an awful lot of families suffered seeing so many of their their own having to go abroad because they had no choice. And so, no, I wouldn't wish that. Um, When I find myself going into generic bars where you could be in any city in the world, I think, oh, Jesus, what have we done? Or I walk down around Grand Canal area and I see these faceless glass boxes. You know, I do think, oh, come on, lads, we could have done better than this. You know, we, we could have gone a bit quirkier than uh, than this. We've got a bit more imagination. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's that, there are aspects of, of um, you know, the, the, the Ireland that I grew up in, the Dublin I grew up in, that, you know, I think were very precious. Um, the sense of community, the sense of family, the sense of connection. The black humour was just second to none. You know. You think the sense of community is still there from where you're maybe from where you're from, where you grew up, or do you think it's changed? I think it depends on what part of the country you're talking about. I mean, if I look back to where I grew up in Dublin, there's a hugely strong sense mm. of community there. And um, you know, neighbours still look out for neighbours. You know, you're in hospital, you come home, there's a casserole dish on your front your front your front doorstep, you know, bins are put out for people. So I think it's still very much there. I think I mean I live in the centre of town now, just slightly more anonymous. I live next door to Google. You know, walking down Barrow Street is, you know, it's you might as well be outside the United Nations. Mm. It's very difficult to hear an Irish mm. accent. It's true. You know, so you get into a lift with somebody and, you know, uh, it's it's more of a grunt than a good morning and, mm-hmm. and knowing who they are. Um, so I think it depends on, on, on where you are. I still think there's an intrinsic kindness and interest in other people mm-hmm. that the Irish have. And it, it really hits you in the face when you come home. In fact, it, on occasion, it can feel intrusive mm-hmm. when you've been used to living the sure. London life for a long time. Yeah. But, you know, you can go for three days without speaking to anybody in London. That would be an impossibility in yeah, Dublin. Yeah, absolutely. So the next song you have is Good Riddance, which is probably fitting quite well with the <laughs> your life, yeah. Green Day. Um, to be honest with you, no other reason other than it makes me feel happy. 
it's good enough. Yeah, it makes me smile. And if I'm having a, a shite day, um, it's the song I put on and I have a little shimmy around the, the living room and <laughs> I have a smile. And I think we all need a song like that that just chirps you up. I also, uh, I've been taking guitar lessons again recently and it's my goal to try and play that on the guitar. Brilliant. Um, but I haven't gotten any further than... Um, He's got the whole world in his hands, so I think I'm quite a way away from it, but we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep at it. We'll keep at it. Another turning point, a fork stuck in the road. Time grabs you by the rest, directs you where to go. So make the best of this test and don't ask why. It's not a question, but a lesson learned in time. It's something unpredictable, but in the end is right. I hope you had the time of your life. So take the photographs and still frames in your mind. Hanging on a shelf in good health and good time. Tattoos and memories. Um, just, just to, I was going to ask you about the volunteering. You mentioned that briefly about the um, just for kids law. Yeah. Um, so you always, you've always done volunteering. Is this something that's always been there for for you, or is it something you fell into when you were in no, London? I, I mean, I suppose I was kind of brought up with that kind of mentality. My my dad um, and my mother actually. My dad was actually national commissioner for scouting uh, in Ireland. Um, my mother worked with special needs volunteer groups, very very involved in the community. So I was kind of brought up with that paradigm of there is a part of your life that is about connecting in mm-hmm. um, and just doing something because it's, it's, it might leave a legacy for one or, or several individuals that might make things a little better for them. So I probably always had that uh, paradigm. When I was with Accenture, I did uh, take six months off. And I did laugh, actually, because most of my colleagues assumed I was going off to do an MBA. Uh, and I was actually gone off to work with street cur- uh, turtles in Costa Rica oh, wow. and with street kids in um, in Brazil. So, yeah, I suppose it's always it's always been there. I think that that sense of, you know, if you stay too focused on yourself and your own self-improvement and your you know own self-agrandismo, whatever you want to call it, things start to feel quite empty after a while. And, and it's not a, it's not an unselfish act. Mm. To, to be selfless with other people and to give to other people because you get so much from it you, yourself. Um, yeah, they were, I was listening yesterday on the radio. There were two, um, it was actually Kira Kelly was on um, somebody from Alone. They're doing yeah. a um, coffee mornings here around uh, South William Street for um, the Alone charity. Yeah. And they were talking about it. They're expecting their volunteering to grow between 1,800 to 9,000 this yeah. year. Just, I, I know for anything I ever done in volunteering, it's just, it's just phenomenal. Just coming home, you feel so much more. Yeah, absolutely. You, you learn so much more about yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you just, I mean, I we need human connection. We need, you know, that feeling of knowing that you've helped somebody else or you've perhaps made, you know, even an hour of their day a little easier is, you know, is a phenomenal thing. In fact, with the Lust for Life, we did a campaign there called Sound Effect last year, which was really trying to promote the power of soundness. You know, we intentionally used the word sound uh, because I think the Irish own that word um, and we didn't we wanted it to be fun and playful we didn't want it to be sanctimonious or excessively earnest and you know what's that got to do with mental health well if we can create a kinder society where there's a almost a self-regulation that we unquestionably look after each other 
um, then somebody that finds themselves in a dark place will have a little bit more hope and will have a little bit more trust that, you know, if they turn around to the person beside them and say, I'm struggling, that they'll go, look, I have your back. And there's actually really interesting research out there now around the neuroscience behind this as well. Uh, soundness is not a nice to do. You know, if you're, you know, if I do something sound for you, you know, you and I get that lovely, warm, fuzzy feeling that you get when you do something nice for somebody else. That's actually serotonin increasing in your body. Mm-hmm. It's a natural antidepressant. Mm. It's just the same you get when you do exercise exactly. and uh, you're out in the, in the air. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, there, there, and there are lots of, um, you know, different benefits that are actually very tangible, very specific and proven by neuroscience. Self-compassion, being sound to yourself, actually. Something that the Irish struggle with in the face of the dreaded notions, you know. <laughs> That's proven, you know. Um, you know, gratitude. Uh, the physical act of going to seek something to be grateful for sends happy hormones through your body. Mm. You know, it's a way of managing your mind. It's a way of taking care of your own mind. What's yeah. the campaign you did? You did a little book of sound. That's right. Yeah, that was uh, part of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it was amazing actually because we had no money. Um, we partnered up with Pieta House on it, and uh, we said we need to do something, and let's just keep it really simple, and let's just ask people to share sound acts that they've done for somebody else that they've done for themselves, and of course you know being in Ireland people only shared what other people had done for them they wouldn't be they wouldn't be talking about themselves in that kind of manner you know and I can remember myself and Brian Higgins the CEO of Pieta House going on the day we launched it going on Today FM I think it was to do an interview and nobody else was really interested we'd know other interviews really lightened up we had the crack and the chats and whatever and by 11 o'clock it was trending number one in Ireland oh. and we found ourselves on every radio station in Ireland and television we got a letter from the Taoiseach and the President uh, we did a three-day gig in the Electric Picnic at the end of the campaign. And the ultimate reach was about 6.3 million. And I just think people were ready for an alternative, Andrea. They were, you know, one of the themes of the campaign was, lads, we're, we're drowning in a sea of negativity here. You know, we wake up every morning. The first thing you do typically is look at your phone. What are you being told? Jesus, what's Trump done? They're bombing Barcelona. Oh, Christ, look at Brexit. Oh, my God, those, you know, poor refugees. Um, and we have a thing as human beings called the negativity bias that we tune into negativity. It's how we survived for years. We had to tune into threats to protect ourselves. We don't have the lion that's going to eat us anymore, or the fellow with the spear. You know, we have toxic media and toxic messaging that's surrounding us. It's damaging our minds. It's damaging our well-being. Just before we go into the lust for life, a bit more in detail. But uh, Imer's dream by Colin McNamara. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's it's fantastic. simply beautiful. I heard that for the first time um, on New Year's Day um, at First Fortnight in Christchurch. Um, you're probably familiar with First Fortnight, an mm-hmm. um, incredible European festival. In fact, we're involved. In fact, the final podcast that we're doing for Where There's a Will, we're actually doing it live at First Fortnight in January. Mm-hmm. And I, I had been involved in the New Year's festival for uh, that particular year. It was the first year I was home and I hadn't had any sleep for about two weeks. I probably had about four hours sleep and I went to... Christchurch under duress and I, my head was on a swivel I was, I was nodding away and I can remember Colm introducing this piece of music and uh, he, he talked about a friend whose sister very sadly died by suicide and Colm tried to imagine what was going through her mind and wrote this piece of music and I thought it was quite incredible um, that something that was a representation of such pain and, and such suffering was so uplifting and the only thing I could think was it was because it was one human being trying to empathise with another and it came out in the music because he's clearly a gifted musician 
He's a wonderful soul as well. Oh, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting him personally. I obviously saw him on stage that night, but I haven't met him personally. But I thought, my God, that's a gift. And interestingly, despite what it's about and despite it being, you know, it's not, uh, you know, ABBA uh, as a piece of music, it would be also a piece of music I would turn to to uplift myself. What does Lust for Life do? What's the purpose of it? Well, to give you a very, very quick history, it started with Brezzy writing a blog called My 1000 Hours about his own personal mental health journey. He was more than a little overwhelmed by the response he got. He knew he needed to do something more. He needed to build an organisation. He didn't have personal skills or ability uh, to do that. And Lust for Life was formed in 2015 it was originally very much and still is to a degree very much anchored around the website and the idea of it is at the you know the big picture level what we're trying to do is transform how we talk about and treat mental health the website um, has been a cornerstone of that in that it has been very much focused on trying to support empower and inspire people to take better care of their own minds there's probably two aspects to that we have a lot of experts or people who have been through journeys that share uh, an informed perspective on things that might help you um, from a wide range of, you know, stress in the workplace, postnatal depression, mindfulness, wh- whatever it might be, there's a whole range of, of ways in which you can look at, at mental wellness. Um, and then the other aspect is encouraging people to share personal stories about where they're at, where they've been, uh, what they've experienced and it's interesting we look at the website stats every month and by a mile it's the personal stories that attract most attention Mm. it's people saying i've been there or i'm still there that give other people permission to talk about it or probably a little bit of hope that there is a journey they can go on and none of these stories are wrapped up with a bow and there's no Mm. disneyland ending and because we're all on a journey this is not about fixing anybody this is about us all being on a journey so that's where it came from since then it's grown i think there's there are three primary things that we're trying to do. Uh, one, is, as I say, is to give people tools that will empower them to take better care of their own minds. The, two, the second is to use uh, the position that we have and the voice that we have to positively influence how we talk about mental health. And then the third, which is very much related to where there's a will, is to positively advocate to change what we're calling a mental health system in Ireland. It's not a mental health system. Yeah. It was because it doesn't work and so yeah so there's a number of things that have come from that where there's a will podcast being one yeah. uh, the sound effect campaign and uh, we're hoping to continue that next year with a campaign called turn up the sound where we go deeper and broader 
with the whole, you know, let's let's celebrate the power of sound, let's understand the power of sound. Um, and then we've just gotten funding, actually. We've started work on developing a Netflix of mental health for schools called FutureFlix. That's right. I was talking to Kira about that. Yeah. I'm hoping to do a conversation with her on that. Do, and, uh, please yeah, do. We really, I, know, yeah. I think we're going to try to do it before Christmas. It sounds fantastic. Yeah. 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 But tell me, why did you get involved? I got involved... Um, <laughs> I, I got involved in quite an arbitrary way. I was introduced by a friend to Brezzi who was looking for help with his strategy and given my background I was able to help him and I said yeah sure no problem just a quick question who's Brezzi because I've lived in London for 20 years yeah. and I didn't understand who this six foot five fecker from Mullingar was and why everybody was so excited about yeah. him. Uh, I was very taken with his um, authenticity. He's become a very good friend um, I think his ability to turn something that was a great source of pain and struggle and fear for him into something very positive and to do it in a very, very real way. I think the reason, you know, Brezzy connects with an awful lot of people is he speaks as he would if you're sitting in a coffee shop beside him. He, he mm -hmm. doesn't speak in a way that's detached. So I, I felt where it was coming from was a very positive, very pure um, place. I had seen an awful lot of people that are very, very close to me suffer to a very large extent with mental health issues um, uh, both here in Dublin but also in London and I've had front row seats to some people who came to the point of, of, of you know wanting to take their own lives and seeing somebody you love in that place and then seeing a system that sits around them that is anything but empathic in, in how they, they hold that person it's just not good enough in my view. I'm lucky that I haven't had that extremity of experience personally, but you know the black dog visits me like it visits anybody else. You know I probably again, given the Ireland I grew up in, I probably suffered from anxiety um, at points in life. I certainly did when I was working in the city in London, but I didn't have language for it, mm. and I had a just get the hell over yourself mentality. I just I just think you know we've we understand the need and to look after our own bodies. Nobody thinks it's weird to go to the gym, to train and look after our own bodies and why we don't understand the need to look after our own minds, to take care of our own minds and, and to support other people to do the same where, where they need it. Mm. Um, it's baffling. It's baffling how we've separated mind and body as a society. Yeah. Um, and I just think we can do better. You know, we teach kids Pythagoras theorem. We don't teach them how to centre themselves when they you know, might have a panic attack or they might feel acute anxiety or they simply feel afraid, mm. you know. And one of the previous guests in this podcast is a guy called Niall Merker and he does, uh, Neil, I should say, and he does the Wim Hof method of breathing. Yeah. And we were talking about that. It's literally a five-minute breathing exercise that has been proven to calm down your body. Mm. Anxiety, especially this mm. time of the year. Christmas exams and all that, you know, five minutes yeah. instead and do the roll call just should be bossy. Yeah. And it's cool. Just do five minutes of breathing and feel better and absolutely yourself. But absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a fundamental tool to, to help you take care of yourself. But I know uh, hopefully your uh, podcast will change that somehow. But uh, from now on, Hugh Jackman. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Utter cheese, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely fabulous cheese. I didn't know you could sing. Pardon? I didn't know you could sing. He's not a bad singer, no, actually. I... He's not a bad singer. I think he's just got great presence. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I did see the, the Greatest Showman, and despite myself, I didn't want to like it. 
I couldn't help feeling, you know, fairly buoyed up when I watched it. But the reason I chose that song is I was speaking on a panel of Let's Talk Mental Health in the Workplace uh, about a month and a half ago, organised by Donna O'Connor and Great Session. And I got there um, just as the previous session was ending and it was Caroline McGuigan from Suicide or Survive, a great lady. They were playing that song as their closing piece. And I was thinking, shit, I missed a trick here. I should have brought some music with me. Um, and they were playing that song and there were, must have been 150 people in the room. Most of them didn't know each other. And they were all on their feet and they were laughing and they were looking at each other and they were clapping and they were stamping their feet. Jeffrey, do you know that lovely moment where you just walk into a room and you go, God, this is gorgeous. It's just a lovely moment of energy. And again, I think musicians have a gift to do that to people. And so anytime I hear it now, I smile and I think I'm, you know, transformative, a happy moment. I drink champagne with kings and queens. The politicians praised my name. But those were someone else's dreams. The pitfalls of the man I became. For years and years, I chased their cheers. A crazy speed of always needing more. But when I stop and see you here, I remember. So just to talk about the podcast, as I said, I listened to the first two episodes and it's so informative. I I think everybody should listen to it regardless of what their mental health or not. And one of the things that struck me, I think it was in episode one, one of your participants, one of the girls participated and she was talking about her own journey and she said... She, she said something like she went to the GP and sat in the GP room waiting for it to be seen and she felt, I'm taking the GP's time here mm. and I'm not as sick as these people mm. that might have a broken leg or whatever it may be. Is that the issue? Is that one of the main issues that we don't feel that you know, mental health is, is an actual disease? Is that the right word? or what, what I, think, is? I, think we've, I think we've come a long way in that regard. I mean, I think... I think we've come a long way in terms of awareness and generating awareness um, and gradually eroding the stigma, which I think is the primary issue. Mm. There's fear of judgment. Mm. Um, there's fear of being perceived as vulnerable and of being perceived as weak. You know, if I take Leia Healthcare, I did this study at the beginning of this year in the workplace. They surveyed a large number of people and nine out of ten people surveyed actually said that they wouldn't tell their boss if they had mental health issues for fear of jeopardizing their employment prospects. Mm. So I think there's I think there's fear of judgment, um, there's fear of being appear you know, of, of appearing uh weak to the point of being unstable. I think there's still a, a cultural issue, which is probably more acute, I would it's my personal opinion, I don't have stats to back this up. It's probably more acute in Ireland. Although I I'm glad to say I can see it changing. I definitely grew up in an Ireland where self-focus was, was a thing of selfishness. To focus on how you felt as opposed to having a broken leg. The broken leg would win every time mm. because how you felt, you just needed to get on with it. Mm. You just needed to get over yourself. There was always somebody worse off than you. 
So I think that is, I think the whole issue of stigma, I think the whole issue of awareness, I think so many organisations have done so much, not just at Lust for Life, to move uh, the dial along. And, you know, we see it in, in the people and what people are willing to share with us. And I think we're seeing it, actually. I, I was with Niall Muldoon. Um, I interviewed him um, as part of the podcast. He's the children's ombudsman. Absolutely delightful gentleman. And he was talking about, you know, I asked him, was, was there an upsurge in children uh, experiencing anxiety and depression? Because we were certainly, you know, witnessing an awful lot more contact. And, you know, he talked about, yes, in comparison to 10 years ago, the impact of social media mm. is having a disproportionate impact on children. Uh, societally, they are dealing with much more complex issues earlier at the family level, at the society level than perhaps we were. But he said they also have the language, the permission and the entitlement to say, I don't feel okay, which is a really, really positive thing. Mm. So I think we're in, we're directionally correct on the awareness. And I, I think it was Lisa that was the lady you, you were referring to. The positive thing is that perhaps 15 years ago, she might not have gone to the GP in the first place. She might still be struggling with it while she's sitting there. And it's an incredibly difficult thing to do, to disclose that you're struggling. The problem is we're making all these strides on awareness and we're encouraging people to speak up and say, I'm not okay. And then there's no help there when you do. That's the thing that struck me when she... And you, we hear all the time, uh, you know, if you're through the public system and you have... You need to go to hospital, you might be on a six-month waiting list or whatever. In that particular illness, you might be able to wait. You know, some, some illnesses, you can't wait, unfortunately. But that's, that was her, her story. She was yeah. saying, you know, finally it took me so long yeah. to make the, the step to go talk to somebody. And then I'm sitting here in limbo for Yeah, and forever. you're put on a waiting list. And that's... Uh, but then, as you said, there's not even a system to get into. It's yeah. just... Yeah. So then you're talking to somebody... And there was something strange about refer, being referred to a psychiatry as opposed to a psychologist, mm. this two steps. So, but so the, the interesting thing though, you, you did see, you did say that she, um, you've seen uh, changes for the better. Do you think, having lived in London, you mentioned some of your friends were on the verge and you know they, mm. they, they went very close to to the edge. And like in Ireland, we had the Celtic Tiger. We're we having the second one at the moment. Mm. We. With so many beautiful cars driving around it. Do you yeah. think that's because like it, it, it's this you're in that world still of uh, the money business, you know? Mm. Is that contributing to a young professional getting into that system, having to buy the BMW, whatever the latest? Is that contributing to mental health? In my view, yes. In my view, you know, any anything that puts uh, you know a false pressure on you uh, to assume what well, to acquire and assume that the acquisition of a thing or the acquisition of a job title is going to make you happier more fulfilled i know from personal experience it's, it's horseshit mm. it's absolute horseshit if you're not true to yourself yeah. um, and you, you don't tune into who you are and what success looks like for you then you're living somebody else's dream or you're living a non-existent person's dream actually because everybody's <laughs> doing the same thing so yes i think you know, it's a bit like the, the social media effect. The the pressure to make statements about who you are by virtue of what you wear, what you drive, where you live, what your job title is, puts an acute level of pressure uh, on people to, you know, to be in a constant spiral of self-comparison. You know, that self-critic in your mind 
that's constantly if it because there's always going to be a bigger car mm. there's always going to be a bigger house there's always going to be somebody that has a better job title than you so if you're in that spiral of that's what defines me that's who i am then your self-critic is going to be on overdrive all the time because there's always something more there's always something bigger that doesn't mean that you have to switch off the desire to grow and learn and evolve and you know there's a fabulous it's a fabulous thing when you go on sure. a mission to you know, to do something that you never thought you could do or to achieve something that you never thought you could achieve. That's a phenomenal thing. But it depends on what's driving that. If it's a self-punitive stick that's driving that, that's damaging. Yeah, which just goes back to what you were saying earlier on about grounding yourself and just really trying to figure out who you are and yeah. why you're doing things, the things that you're doing. Just uh, Dolly Parton, here, come again. I don't know this song. Tell me about ah, it. Ah, come on. Dolly Parton. Well, I listened to it on the way in just to make sure ah, I was come up to date. On. Dolly Parton. I know Dolly Parton. I don't know that song. She's a legend. She's an absolute Tell me about it. I just couldn't give you a playlist without Dolly Parton on it because <laughs> she's a legend. I've seen her live three times and every time I see her, I think I want to be just like you when I grow up. Um, I think she's she's just an amazing, she's an amazing artist. Um, the Here We Come Again is, you know, I think it's quite a, a happy song, but it's, I, I, if I remember correctly, it's about a relationship that keeps coming back to the same place. But it always reminds me of, you know, um, when you find yourself, when everything's, you know, caving in on you and you think, oh, Jesus, you know, the world, the whole world's against me. And then a little bit of you goes, you've been here before. <laughs> There's a cycle to how you interact with the world, love. And as you get older... You know, it, it, it's not quite so acute because you go, I kind of recognize the signs here. You're going to go off the rails for a couple of months. You're not going to eat properly. You're not going to do any exercise. You're going to beat the crap out of yourself. Why don't we try and make this a little bit shorter this time? And that song reminds me of that. Here you come again Just when I've begun to get myself together You waltz right in the door Just like you've done before and wrap my heart round your little because I was talking to Kira was on this podcast Kira Kelly was on this podcast a couple of weeks ago um, and she mentioned as a GP about 70% of the people walked into her yeah. uh, surgery had something to do it was mm. something to do with mental health and we're talking you, know, you say we are talking about it more but what I, I can't try to get my head around it it's because it's because we're talking about more is it more mental health issues now than ever was before or was because we're talking about more I don't know what what is um I, I mean how long is a piece of string um uh, I think it's both okay I think it's both um I think there as I say people feel a little more entitled than they they did a number of years ago to talk about it um which is a, a, a really good thing I think there are constructs in society now that uh didn't exist 20 years ago that by definition put uh, put pressure on people uh, in, a, in a different way you know the point system in the leaving cert mm. has just gotten more and more aggressive sure. as, as time has gone on 
um, you know, wealth creeping into an Ireland that never had a pot to piss in, mm. you know, creates competition, creates comparative paradigms. Um, you know, we, we've already talked about social media. We don't need to flood that one to death. Um, so, yes, I think there are, we, we're living in an overwhelming world. There's no, I mean, we are on 24-7. We are contactable 24-7 and we're being assaulted by information that translates into messages that you tell yourself about yourself. Um, in a, in a probably an unprecedented way, the reality is that's not going to stop. Um, you know, social media is not going to be switched off tomorrow. The key, I think, is to acknowledge that there's. I don't know if you've read the choice by Edith Eager. Mm. I'd really recommend reading it. She's a Holocaust survivor, and um, is now a very eminent psychologist. And you know, obviously, her situation was probably one that most of us couldn't even conceive of, but. Ultimately, her message is that you can develop the mental resilience um, and you can give yourself the personal equipment and the personal paradigms that actually don't hand your power over to something that's happening around you that you can't control. Um, so we can't control the madness that goes on around us. Um, but what we can control is how we interact with it and what equipment we give ourselves uh, to interact with it. So to answer your question, is it is it worse? You know, do we have stats to prove it's 10% worse, 12% worse? No. Um, there's a positive aspect to it, and there's definitely, in my view, a societal aspect that we're just being overwhelmed. I guess my point is, uh, you mentioned earlier on, growing up in Dublin, you were told, get on with it. Yeah. And now, organizations like yours are trying to create a society where you should be able to sit down next door to somebody and say, look, I need a hand here. I'm struggling, mm. which is fantastic. But I wish I was still okay to say to somebody, "Look, get on with it," because it's not, you know, it's it's, it's not as bad as you might think. If you know what I mean, like I'm just I'm just wary of the fact. I that think if if the get on with it has a level of empathy and understanding uh, associated with it, you know, it's you can't be totally binary about it. I suppose the get on with it I'm talking about was dismissing how you feel. Okay. Yeah. So. You know, I can on occasion remember feeling very, very frightened um, and feeling very, very anxious. But I didn't feel that I was worth or, you know, entitled to talk about that. You know, okay. sure, there's, there's, there's poor people in Africa. Sure, what would you be going on about being a bit frightened? Yeah. You know, you have a dinner on your table every night, you know, move on. And actually, you know, that has its legacy. You know, that deals with, you know, dysfunctional, you know, scripts in your head. And that, you know, leaves you with... Uh, you know, self-esteem issues and, you know, that, that comes back to bite you. So there's no point of pretending you don't feel like that. So, and I, and I think, you know, I, the best example I could give actually is, you know, I can remember uh, knowing of people when I was growing up and, you know, that lovely Irish expression of she's mithered with her nerves, you know, mm -hmm. or she's taken to the bed and only discovering years later that the people that were being referred to in that way had very often been institutionalized or were bipolar or, or manic depressant as they were called uh, in those days. And I actually think I would have really benefited from understanding that because it would have been a great bit of kit for me to perhaps be less frightened of when, when I encountered that in later life in other people. And the best example I can give of that is, you know, seeing the two daughters of a friend of mine who's like a sister to me in London um, and her husband made a choice that her two daughters 
would be spoken to about this openly, that it wouldn't be mummy has taken to the bed. Mm. It wouldn't be a dark door that they weren't allowed to go beyond. They would go and sit with mum and they would go and, you know, try to understand what was going on. He would then ask them how they felt about it afterwards. He would explain to them what was happening. He would ask them if they felt frightened and he gave them permission to talk about it. And if I think about, I, you know, the, the two girls are goddaughters of mine and I'm very close to them and I see how they navigated that. You know, I think he gave them the greatest gift imaginable in that they've got equipment to deal with that in other people and in themselves for the rest of their lives. They're not frightened of it. Mm. It's just a natural thing. We all have a mind and sometimes things go awry, you know. Mm. So I get where you're going with the, you know, just get over yourself. No, no, no. You don't don't want to lose yourself up your own backside in analysis paralysis. And I'm not not being critical. No, I know. I'm just finding that, like, I'm trying to work out, like, we now have a label for most things, which is great. You know, like, Mm. if you're, (laughs) if, uh, you know, you're dyslexic, you know, there's a lot of dyslexia, and uh, it's fine. You can deal with it. When I was in school, there was no dyslexia. Mm. Just you, you were slower. You weren't mm. as quick as the rest of the class or whatever. You weren't smart enough. Mm. All the different ADT, ADHD, yeah, yeah. This is, yeah, there's a lot yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just, I'm just wondering. So, and this is just purely from a, an, a, an ignorant point of view. I don't understand it. So if, when somebody comes and look for help because they have... A mental health issue, be it depression, be it whatever it may be. Uh, obviously, if they're coming through you in terms of just opening up, they may they may be referred, or they might not refer is the wrong word, but they might go, okay, well, you should really talk to Peter House, or you should really talk to uh, other organisations out mm. there. Do you find that once is diagnosed, that particular case is diagnosed with an actual name associated with the the mental health issue? You know, look, you are depressed, you're going mm. through depression. Is that a way off their shoulders? Is that something that people go, okay, look, now I feel better. I know what it, what's wrong with me. Everything. Yeah. I mean, I can only share what other people have shared with me in that regard. I'm, I'm not a mm. uh, medical professional. Oh. I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, nor what I pretend to be. From, from what I understand, firstly, it's very difficult. And actually, that there are a lot of criticisms of the, uh, the need to medicalize mental health based mm. on a there is a diagnosis, we fix it. Mental health is messy. Yeah. And actually, it very, does not, it very often doesn't lend itself to labels that fit mm. in neat boxes. You know, it's not a clean fracture. Right. And um, there, there are very often layers and complexities, which is why it's, it's a difficult one for people to discuss and get their heads around. Um, from what I understand, and, and as I say, the, the Where There's a Will podcast was a great learning experience for me, talking to Kira Kelly and Noel Muldoon mm. and a variety of others. There does seem to be a sense of relief in an acknowledgement that there is something that they need help with. Uh, I don't know that it's a, a clean diagnosis, you know, in the same way that you, you've you got diabetes, you've got sure. a sprained wrist, um, but an acknowledgement and a validation of, I'm going to try and find a way to help with you. And yes, there is something that you need help with appears to be a source of relief okay. uh, for people because it's basically telling them, this is okay. This is not, you know, this happens and there's precedent and other people are going through similar things. Um, and suddenly it's not so lonely and it's not so frightening. That's my understanding. But yeah, again, yeah, I, no, and again right. I don't, I don't pretend to be a professional. No, 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 regard, no, but uh, that's uh, you're more experienced than that. That's, that's interesting. I wouldn't need coming to the end, but Sweet 16, The Fury. <laughs> and that's another interesting one. Oh, stop. Um, so my, my, um, there's a couple of reasons for that. My dad uh, played in a ballad group um, when he was younger. 
um, much younger and I have memories of being a kid and coming down on a Saturday night and seeing all these guys that look like Ronnie Drew sitting around the fire um, playing guitars um, and it kind of stayed with me and you know the whole thing of the noble call at an Irish party you have to have your peace and I oscillate between that and the green fields of France if I'm asked to sing a rebel song um, and it has to be gin fueled when I when I do it I will admit but I, I, I have a particularly funny memory of uh, being in London with a very close Irish friend of mine and we'd been out and we were a bit the worse for wear and the the two of us came back to my apartment with an English friend and um, we got very nostalgic for the homeland shall we say and we started playing Sweet Sixteen on a spiral and we sang at the top of our voices and we didn't realise that we'd probably given it a go probably about 15-16 times until we looked around and realised that Paul our English friend was no longer in the room and he'd actually gone in and gotten into the bath um, and wrapped a towel around his head and gone to sleep because he couldn't bear any more of these paddies singing uh, Sweet Sixteen. Um, so it just makes me laugh when I, any time I hear that. That's Very good. the main reason. quickly now about um, I mean it's, it's, it really is generally a lovely piece of journalism it's very well put together it flows really well you know there's, there's a lot for somebody who doesn't know anything about the subject it was very very interesting to listen you know I was captivated which I suppose is the idea is to make sure you know, I want to listen to the next mm. one episode 3 or whatever comes up next how many episodes are you going to have? 6 6 okay the last one will be a live one at first fortnight so you're just 2 out at the moment yeah, uh, yeah. Coming and out they come out weekly, or uh, they're coming out weekly up till Christmas, or okay. Thursday up till Christmas. Yeah. Okay. Um, how long does it take you to put it together? I can, from concept to I you have and to Kira. Say, yeah, Kira um, O'Connor deserves all of the credit. Yes, I did some of the interviews. Yes, I did the voiceovers. Uh, Kira O'Connor is a gifted, gifted lady. She's a gifted storyteller and she's a gifted co- uh, producer. Um, we started talking about doing this in the summer mm-hmm. and Kira probably got engaged in the planning for it, probably July, August uh, time frame. We're very lucky in that we have access to uh, amazing individuals, some of the leading voices in mental health across Ireland. They're already associated with this or close friends of ours. So she was able to get people lined up relatively quickly over probably a six week period okay. to do the interviews. Um, I'm slightly in awe of how quickly she's managed to weave it into a narrative. Mm. Um, you know, we, we talked a lot at the beginning. She came up with a construct of the different chunks and we actually thought we would slot, you know, individuals into particular episodes 
because they were, you know, an expert in yeah. child mental health services or they would probably be equipped to talk about the future in a different way. And what we actually found is that all of these individuals had so much passion, had so much knowledge and had, you know, really thought about holistically what was needed that you'll find there's multiple voices weaved through all of them and the themes came out very, very, very naturally. The the big thing that we were really big on from the beginning is that this wasn't going to be a problem admiration society and that it wasn't going to be us sitting on a wall throwing rocks, that it wasn't going to be, you know, a cold, faceless, statistic-based analysis of the mental health system, that we were going to bring personal voices into it and because ultimately... That is the point that, you know, our mental health system is dehumanizing. Um, and, and this is talking about my brother, my sister, your cousin, your neighbor. And we have to keep it personal. We have to recognize this is about interacting mm-hmm. with people. And I think Kira's done a magnificent job of weaving personal perspective in with expert perspective. Um, and I think the other thing to say on the podcast is we don't just want to stop with the podcasts. We wanted it to be a really strong baseline deconstruction of the mental health system with an articulation both of challenge and impact of what we've got today but also an articulation of where we could go and what the solution could be and what we want to do is to move from that into engaging directly with government to say guys you know we're not going to sit behind political spin and we're not going to get you we we are going to hold you to account but can we work with you here to actually figure out how we can drive change because we're not going to stay silent and you are the government, so you do work for us. But we're also not going to stand and throw rocks at you or, you know, adhere to, you know, negative styles of, of public debate. And so for us, this is the beginning of a journey. Yeah, and I think you say at the beginning of the first episode, you know, that this is not a standby to the five minutes interview with somebody no. in, in some radio station. I mean, this is a body of work that you can listen to carefully, you can replay yeah. it. Yeah. Um, have you got any... Uh, uh, have you any of the, the ministers or what is the Minister for Health or whoever coming back to you on this? Are they are they going to be part in it? They're definitely being shared with them. Okay. Um, I mean, Simon Harris, uh, you know, follows what we do, uh, very regularly engages with uh, with Brezzi, was one of our panellists at the Electric Picnic um, sessions that we did last year. So, you know, there, there is no brick wall. There's a lot of dialogue that goes on. The next phase is where we really want to use what we've created here to to have that direct uh, uh, interaction and the okay okay buddy yeah, yeah. step up what are what are we going to do? But what do you think? What do you think is the stumbling block here? What is the political will? Is that what it is? Uh, in my view, yes. Okay. So the reality is that there are much greater minds than mine, and um, that have much greater knowledge about this space than I do. Um, that articulated um, what needed to happen here in a document called Vision 2020. That was developed nearly 12 years ago. And um, it articulates what needs to happen to create a a patient-centric mental health system that will always catch all of us when we fall. And it looked at everything from funding to the need for 24-7 care to the need to resource in a different way. And it's a very comprehensive you know, pretty difficult to argue with document based are coming from people who know they're on the cold face, they understand, they get it. Unfortunately, it was launched shortly before the crash and it got thrown out the window. And so very sadly, 12 years on, very little of it has been implemented. So the answer is there. The solution is there. Um, I think the difficulty is 
Mental health is messy. It's not politically expedient. You're not going to, you know, you can build, uh, you know, a treatment centre for X and stand behind it and get a really good photo opportunity. Yeah. Give, give me the photo op with mental health, yeah. you know. Um, so I think there's a, a lot, I don't think, you know, people that are working in this space are bad people. I don't think it helps to characterise them as bad people. Um, I just don't think there's the level of political will that there needs to be. Uh, I don't think there's the level of understanding. And, you know, ultimately what is politically expedient is what gets through. And we've got to change that. You know, the power of the people, you know, has got to change that. Well, as I said, you know, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's just, uh, it really is an amazing piece of... Uh informative journalism that's that's all I can say and uh, hopefully everybody listen to Simon Harris plays it on the replay you understand he is listening to it we'll, we'll find out we'll find out I always ask everybody to give us a couple of words of wisdom oh my god there's anything a big all. question anything at all a quote from the past or something that gets you go gets you up in the morning something there oh it's pro- you know it's a really simple yes. just be kind just be kind. Everyone has troubles. You know, my, my own insecurities for so long, you know, if I met somebody that was particularly abrupt, particularly rude, or or being a bit of a talker and an extrovert, I was always a bit freaked out by very quiet, reserved people. I've just learned over the years that when you scrape away, there's usually something going on there. There's usually something behind it. Um, and, uh, you know, just choosing not to react or fuel that and throwing a bit of kindness away can have very unexpected consequences. So, I'd keep it simple and say, be kind. That's good. That's good enough for me. And we're going to leave us with the very last song that you have, which is a beautiful version of You Are My Sunshine by Johnny Cash. Yeah, Johnny Cash, uh, another legend. Um, wish, I'd, wish I'd gotten to see him live. This, is a, this was a pure frivolous thing. My mother used to sing You Are My Sunshine to me when I was a child. And um, now anytime I hear it, it's a standing joke in the family. I immediately burst into tears because I get a major nostalgic trip. So the slightly more perverse members of my family, as an instrument of torture at family dues, uh, if they're bored, they'll say, lash on, you are my sunshine there, and we'll all watch Paula cry for the crack. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I've, I've, uh, it's been an instrument of torture for me all my life, but probably quite a happy one, so I thought it was best to include. Brilliant. Paula McLaughlin, thanks again for your time. Thank you.
can find out more about Social Fabric at socialfabric.ie.